two things that we can all do that most of us don't think about. One, do as much as you can throughout the day with movement. If you got to take a call and you can do it on a walk, like just go for a walk and take the call on the walk. If you just think about how you can incorporate more movement into your day, a lot of the things that we do, we could do on a walk or we could do standing. All right, my friends, it's Dr. Anthony Balduzzi, and I want to welcome you back to another episode here on the Fit Father Project and Fit Mother Project podcast. Today, we're joined by guest expert, Dr. Thomas Hemingway, a board-certified medical doctor, a father of six, the host of the Unshakable Health podcast, and the author of a very good book called Preventable, Five Powerful Practices to Avoid Disease and Build Unshakable Health. And the reason we're bringing Dr. Thomas Hemingway on is because this guy walks the walk. He talks the talk. Not only does he have a lot of medical experience and he presents it in a very good way, but he's like the living embodiment of what it looks like to be healthy in your fifth decade of life. As mentioned, he has a lot of kids. He's living in Hawaii. He's running his medical practice and he's also implementing all these lifestyle habits that we talk about inside our program. So today we're going to basically have Dr. Hemingway on to talk about how all busy parents can optimize their health, their energy and vitality. And we're going to run the whole gamut of talking about nutrition exercise, mindset, and also get into some things that we haven't talked a lot about here, like environmental toxins um, and other things that Dr. Hemingway feels are very relevant for a long and healthy life. So Dr. Thomas Hemingway, welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, aloha. Aloha. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm pumped. Yeah, I'm pumped too. And I want to kick off by kind of getting straight into some of the high level statistics. You wrote a book called Preventable, largely because I think you looked around, you saw that we're kind of hitting this weird epidemic that's happening right now where metabolic issues are like crazy and people are not getting better and not being well. And we're actually kind of like eating ourselves to death and all sorts of like this. Like, how bad is this epidemic of preventable disease? And like, how do you kind of talk about this with people when you come on these types of shows? Yeah, I mean it's it's as bad as it's ever been and and really the first time in human history this happened a couple of years prior to COVID in our lifetimes and over the ha- you know the last 100 years the life expectancy has been going up until a couple of years prior to COVID it started to dip stabilize and now it's it's going down each and every year and like I said even prior to COVID the life expectancy has been going down this is despite having all the cutting edge medical technology we have today and it it ain't working and I I, I can tell you honestly as a uh, board certified physician of a couple of decades now, I see this in day to day practice. I see young people in their 30s, in their 40s. People, I say young, and I, I feel really young myself. I'm in my 50th year and I'm crushing it in every way, staying active. But I was seeing uh, guys and gals, both women and men, having heart attacks, strokes, you know, have significant uh, comorbidities, health challenges in their 30s, 40s. And I just thought to myself, what in the world is happening here? I I trained in medical school 30 years ago, and I don't think I ever saw anybody have a heart attack younger than 60. Right. And most were in their 70s and 80s. And like now we're having folks in their 30s and 40s having heart attacks and stroke, which those two combined together make up the most common cause of death right here in the US. Like literally one person out of every three 
in this country dies of either a heart attack or a stroke. That's how common this is. One person every 30 seconds has a heart attack in this country. And in fact, when you take the top 10 leading causes of death in the entire world, not just speaking US and developed countries, in the entire world, seven out of 10 of these common causes of death are nearly entirely preventable. And not even one of those is, is uh, starvation and malnutrition like you would think, right? In all these yeah. rural sub-Saharan countries and, and whatnot where they might still have issues getting food and, and some still do. But that is, even in most of those countries right now, Dr. Anthony, the leading cause of death is related to the comorbidities of obesity. And literally, that metabolic issue that you sort of started with is becoming the most prevalent disease on this planet. We are fatter as a human race than we ever have been in our entire you know, civilization. And the sad thing is, as all of the common causes of death, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, um, even lung conditions, for example, kidney disease, stroke, as I mentioned, the neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all of these things go up in frequency as your weight goes up, every single one of them. And we can talk about why that is later, but it is a tragedy. And that was one of my biggest sort of, I think, impetus to actually write this book is because I was seeing it real time in the ER um, as a board certified doc. I was seeing young folks come in with these conditions and it wasn't how I trained. You know, I was used to seeing older folks having heart attacks. And all of a sudden, it's 30 and 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds every single day having heart attacks. I'm like, that is not right. Something's got to give. Something we, and I say we, and I mean me, primarily in the, in the Western medicine arena, we are not doing something right. We have all of this amazing technology. I mean, we can literally get somebody to what's called the cardiac cath lab in less than 30 minutes, get their main artery, the coronary artery opened up so they can perfuse or get blood flow to the heart and save them in the throes of a heart attack, but we can't prevent it? Like, <laughs> what is going on here? Something's got to yeah. give. And so that's why I did full pivot, full stop. And I said, hey, we got to do something better. I'm going to lead the charge here. I'm a medical doctor of many years experience, and I know how we can do better. And so let's tackle this with prevention over prescription, because mm -hmm. most of these diseases, as I said, seven of 10 of the leading cause of death worldwide are almost entirely preventable. Wow. I mean, and, and well said. Now, what is uniquely happening with being overweight and obese? Is it the unhealthy lifestyle, too many calories, metabolic toxins? Like what, what is, why are those things so highly correlated to all these other kind of conditions? Like what's the underlying common thread of the pathophysiology that's happening with these things if there is some? Yeah. So the, the underlying sort of ground roots, you know, base of all of these health conditions, including obesity, including heart disease, cancer, diabetes, uh, type two, I'm speaking of stroke, um, neurodegenerative challenges. The base of all of this is what we call chronic inflammation. They are all inflammatory conditions. Obesity in and of itself is an inflammatory condition. And I, I had that pleasure a couple of years back before anybody really knew who he was. Dr. Benjamin Bickman came on my podcast and he shared how literally inflammation is at the root of obesity and at the root of nearly every disease and how insulin resistance ties into that. And I, he wrote a book, um, Why We Get Sick was the title. If folks haven't gotten that, I encourage them to do that because it kind of brings it all down to one common denominator, which is chronic, ongoing, daily inflammation, which 
I think we ignore in this society. It's really sad because it's literally the one thing that will affect every health condition out there. And not for the better. Like inflammation on a daily basis is not what you want. If you fall down, scrape your knee, like you want inflammation to happen. You want those blood cells to target that injured area and fix, repair it, get rid of any pathogen as quickly Mm -hmm. as possible. But once that sort of initial healing takes place, you want that inflammation to dissipate. Mm -hmm. You want it to go away. Right. It's like I I, I kind of use the analogy of a fire. You know, in your body, you have this smoldering fire of inflammation going on if you're overweight, if you have type 2 diabetes, if you have metabolic conditions like insulin resistance, which we now know is like nine out of 10 of us here right home at home in the US. Nine out of 10 of us have insulin resistance to some degree. And most doctors don't check for it. Yeah. Most medical doctors do not check for it. They don't do a fasting insulin level. And that's sort of the base of all these diseases is inflammation. And it's not mm-hmm. a good thing. Is it fair to say this is coming from like the food input mostly? Because like what what's happening? Are we just poisoning ourselves with food? Is is the lack of activity causing inflammation? Is lack of sleep causing it? Like what are the main factors that are leading to this inflammatory state in people's bodies? Yeah, so it's all of the above. I wish it were just one thing. Uh-huh. And food is a is a huge driver, 100%. Food is where I generally start. I tell uh, the folks I work with that food is either the best possible medicine, the most helpful tool you could ever have, or it's a slow poison. And you get to pick that. You get to pick that at least three times a day for most people. Yeah. You know, throw in a couple of snacks, maybe it's four or five times a day. You get to pick that. It's either your best tool and aid and helpful sort of natural medicine, if you will, or it's a poison. And you get to pick that. And sadly, right now, present day, as, as you and your, your audience probably knows, our most common type of food here in the U.S. is not just processed food. It's what they call highly processed food, right? The ultra processed food is like 67% of our diet. And in kids, it's like 70%. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and I know this, I got six kids and I got a couple that are in just a standard elementary school setting right now. I got a couple in college, a couple in between, but my kids who go to elementary school, they'll tell me what's on their school lunch calendar. In fact, we'll look at it because sometimes they want to get school lunch because, you know, their friends get it. It's kind of fun. It's kind of different. You know, it's not dad's boring cooking. They want, so we'll look at the calendar and we'll try to decide like, what day does it actually look like food. Most of the days, I'm just going to be honest, it looks like a food-like substance. It doesn't yeah. even look like real food on their calendar. And, and that's because it's this ultra-processed food, which sadly is, is really the demise of our current health situation in this country and around the world is we're eating poor quality. I, I call most of this stuff a food-like substance. It's not even really food. I mean, it's ultra processed. It has sort of the big three drivers of inflammation, which are highly processed sugars, highly processed grains and flours, and then the highly processed, what I call the industrialized seed oils. Yeah, All of their foods that are on the menu, for the most part, probably nine out of 10 of them have these three ingredients, which are literally the recipe for not only obesity, but for every health condition that plagues society today. And so I'm an add more than subtract kind of a guy, Dr. Anthony. I just tell people, you know what, if you can avoid three things, make it be those three, and then just fill your plate with all natural, colorful, real foods, all the things that, like if you were to go to Italy today, like what would they put on their plate? Just think about, you know, those types of real food substances. There's literally way more things to add rather than subtract, just subtract these three things and it would make a world of difference. So what would you see on a nutrition label? If you were looking through something that would be like the absolute red flags, um, or if someone was finding like a medium processed food, some kind of like healthy organic cracker, at least it looks that way. (laughs) But if you look on the nutrition label, 
what do you look for and see that ends up making it a no-go into your body because it's just not worth it? Yeah. So, so one of the biggest factors, the, the really two biggest ones I look for are any type of industrial oil, which we call, you know, the seed oils collectively. And the way I have people think about this is it's any oil that you can't make with just squeezing the fruit. So if mm. you can take an olive and you can squeeze it, press it, as they say, and get the oil, that's safe. Olive oil, we've been using it for millennia. It's, it's a good type of oil. Avocado oil. If anybody's yeah. sliced through an avocado, it's a real greasy, fleshy type of fruit. You just squeeze that thing, and, and yes, it's a fruit. You squeeze that thing, you get oil. Coconuts, if you guys have ever yeah. cut open a coconut, it's very fleshy, very, you know, if you take it and, and touch it on your skin, it's real oily, right? Hence the coconut oil and things like that that you put on your skin and skin products. Like those are the three kind of main healthy or sort of safe oils. Everything else, for the most part, is no good. Start with the most common offender, which is soybean oil. For sure. Soybean oil is ultra inflammatory. Canola oil. And, and here's the thing, Dr. Anthony, a lot of times people go, well, it says organic canola oil. It says organic sunflower oil. I don't care. It's yeah. still a highly processed um, industrial oil, which literally comes out of the package rancid. Now, you can't tell. The reason you can't tell is because it's deodorized right? They bleach it. I mean, they do all kinds of high heat, high pressure just to make this stuff. And then to make us not, you know, go, Ooh, this is pretty disgusting. They, they bleach it. They deodorize it. They do all these things so that when we pour it out of the, uh, the container that we can't tell that it comes literally, it comes rancid. And so it is one of the biggest contributors to inflammation. So anytime you see any of those industrial oils on the container and you can't go by organic labels because they'll often have like my favorite here is I love hummus and there's only about one or two brands that I've ever found that don't have sunflower oil, safflower oil, canola oil, one of these industrial soybean oil. There's only one or two brands out there that I found that don't have those bad oils in it. You got to read the dang label because it'll say organic hummus and you're like, sweet yeah. chickpeas. They're good for me. They have fiber. They're awesome. And then you look at the second ingredient and it's like sunflower oil. And maybe it'll even say on the label, it'll say Olive oil, extra virgin olive oil hummus. <laughs> yeah. And yet that'll be ingredient number 10. For two, sure. three, and four will be sunflower, safflower, canola, and soybean oil. That's so a trick. You, yeah. You, yeah, you gotta, sadly, uh, you have to read labels. And if it has any of these industrialized oils, throw it out. Sugar is another big thing I try to avoid for the most part. I don't care if it's maple, you know, if it's like cane sugar, which I love in Hawaii, obviously I would rather we use cane sugar than the ultra highly processed granulated sugar. But honestly, anything with a bunch of sugar is no good. Right now in society, we are plagued with what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, right. NAFLD, which is primarily caused by overconsumption of sugar. Yeah, And in, in the form, most of it, fructose or highly processed, you know, industrialized high fructose corn syrup. So yeah. if there's anything that has sugar, especially corn syrup or the highly processed corn syrup out there, high fructose corn syrup, definitely try to avoid that. I'm, I'm pretty hardcore on the grains too. I don't like a lot of grains. Most yeah. of them are no good for us, especially in this country. Sadly, I pretty much don't eat any bread in the U S um, or any bread products really because they contain this hybridized 
dwarf wheat, which is not the wheat that we were using millennia ago. So if you go to Europe, a lot of people that have gluten sensitivities when they travel, like to the Mediterranean, for example, they'll tell me, hey, I can actually eat the bread over there. I can eat the pasta. I don't get this really gnarly stomach pain and gas and all the things I get when I eat it here in the US. And that's because they don't use that hybridized dwarf wheat that we use here. And so I pretty much don't eat any grains either. <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm in the US, I'm very selective um, about uh, any grains that I do eat. So I try to avoid those big three when I look at labels, the sugars, the processed flours and grains, and then the seed oils. Those are the three. And you know what's cool about that is when you keep it that simple, most of those other things that I would also encourage people not to you know, consume, like the artificial flavors, the artificial colors, all of these kinds of things tend to tag along with these sure. other processed ingredients. So you don't have to look for them as strongly because they will usually be with those three things. The sugars, the grains and flours, and the seed oils usually come with other bad ingredients. So mm -hmm. uh, you, know, I, you can use my grandmother's adage. She would just say, hey, Look at the label. If it's anything you don't recognize, you don't understand, or it sounds like it could be something in a chemistry lab, like put the thing back on the shelf. Don't put it in your cart. Stick with real food. And I'm telling you, she's right. Real food is best. <laughs> I love it. I have a couple of sub questions to these. When it comes to fruit, talk about fruit and ranked fruits if you feel like some fruits are better than others. And then the concept of maybe getting sugar in the context of fruit versus the a product yeah. with added sugars on the label. Yeah. So you're, you're talking to a guy that actually loves fruit and yeah. I'll be honest, I got sort of the fear of every, you know, everybody, every health influencer out there has kind of been, you know, shaming sugar for a long time. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have been shaming fruit. And I think that that is actually misdirected, misguided. I think fruit was created, especially when it's in season, it was created for us. Like it's literally there mm -hmm. for us. There's so many healthy nutrients today. I ate an entire papaya, like not just these tiny yeah. little uh, uh, ones you find that come from Mexico. This is a Hawaiian papaya. These things are pretty good size. Yeah. And I ate the entire thing. Why? Because it's delicious, number mm -hmm. one, but it also is chock full of healthy antioxidants like yep. lycopenes, for example. Yep. It has tons of vitamin C. It even has, most people don't know this, it even has potassium in there. Yeah. Like, it is so dang, and it's got it's got actually for for millennia they used it as a meat tenderizer because it has yeah. papain in there, yeah, which helps you enzyme. digest your protein. So mm -hmm. I threw that in at the end of my meal. I had a big hearty breakfast. I had four eggs. I had some sausage. I made my kids some bacon. They love bacon. Mm -hmm. They didn't eat it all, so then I ate their bacon too. And at mm -hmm. the end of my meal, I ate a whole papaya. And that not only helps me digest the proteins that I just ate in the meat and eggs, but also it's got tons of antioxidants and vitamin C, and it just tastes so dang good. So this is what I say. I say, eat your fruit. Try not to drink it so much. Yeah. So I'm not a fan of juicing. I don't do really yeah. any juicing. I will uh, make a smoothie uh, from time to time, and it's okay because I'm using the whole fruit. Yep. I'm not cutting off the peels and skins and, and just squeezing juice in there. I actually eat the whole fruit when I make a smoothie. I throw in the whole berry. Yep. You know, There's actually a fair amount. Most people don't know this, but raspberries, you, you eat a cup of those, you've already got eight grams of fiber. Yeah. That's like more than half of what the whole standard American population eats in a whole day. Like Our fiber consumption is way down the tubes. It's like 14, 15 grams a day. You eat one cup of berries, you already got half of that. Yeah. You know, that's in one meal. So when you eat the whole fruit, you not only get the benefits of the, the phytonutrients like vitamin C, the lycopenes, the mm -hmm. antioxidants, those kinds of things, but you're also getting the fiber, which is great 
for all the other folks that live in our intestinal tract, right? The bacteria, mm-hmm. um, primarily there's everything, bacteria, protozoa, viruses, all of that. But the, the main ones that we think about when we think about the microbiota is the bacteria. When we eat fiber, we feed them too, yep. and they can literally help us to achieve optimal health. So eat the fruit. I'm all about fruit. I, I won't ever tell somebody not to eat fruit unless they specifically have a problem with it. Some fruits I feel like are or more likely to spike your blood sugar. And yeah. I always tend to eat my fruit at the end of my meals. I don't start my meals with fruit, for example. So the timing, I feel like, is pretty important. And personally, if you've ever done a CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor, you'll learn what fruits will spike your sugar more than the others, and you'll mm-hmm. learn the combination. So everybody's a little bit different. And it's kind of a blessing and a curse. I've had the opportunity to do this a few times. I actually got a daughter who has type 1 diabetes. And so we're watching her all day long. And then mm-hmm. I've tried the thing as well because I, I'm curious anyway. And so I've got to see how my body responds to certain fruit. And so bananas and pineapple, those two for me spike my blood sugar more than basically any other fruit. And so I don't eat them as often, yeah. which is hard. In Hawaii, we have tons of pineapple. The other night we had some at the end of our barbecue. And I just had a couple little pieces because it that for whatever reason, it just spikes my blood sugar more than than other fruits. So if you have the you know luxury to do a CGM, you can really find out which ones spike it, which ones don't. But I would say generally speaking, fruit is safe. Fruit is great. And anybody that tells you not to eat fruit, I just think they're misguided, honestly. Yeah, great answer. And I, I totally agree with you. Now, a question about some of the healthy fats and or just fats in general. You mentioned a couple of oils that you do like, olive oil, coconut oil, yeah. avocado oil. What's your take on butter? And I'd also like you to speak into the egg cholesterol combination and, and that kind of discussion there. Yeah, I would love to. So, you know, I grew up in the 70s um, as a kid, early 80s, and my mom as most parents did in those days, feared cholesterol. Like she was like, if you have more than one egg, you're going to die of a heart attack. I've always <laughs> yeah. loved eggs. Yeah. I ate four eggs for breakfast today. I mean, I just love eggs. I love the taste. They're so versatile. Like you can stick anything together with eggs. It's literally the glue. If you want to make something real fancy, like throw an egg in there and it'll help. Yeah. <laughs> I love eggs. So yeah. for not just because I love them, but actually they have, as you mentioned, they have cholesterol. And guess what? Our brain is mostly cholesterol. Like we actually need it. And so if you stop eating all eggs, all cholesterol sources, guess what your body's going to do? Well, the liver will actually make the necessary requirement for cholesterol, even if you don't eat it. I would rather eat it because I just freaking like eggs. I think they're amazing. And healthy fats, like you said, butter. Um, I'm all about butter, ghee, tallow. Any natural, real fat is 100 times better than anything man-made, right? Anything made in a factory like the industrialized oils, whether it be those cooking oils that we talked about, anything that says vegetable oil, that's sort of off the list. I'd never use that stuff. Or, you know, the heaven forbid that, that Crisco stuff, yeah, right? Margarine. Crisco was literally, Crisco. literally the beginning of this issue with the uptick in heart disease in this country in the 1950s and 60s. It was Crisco and the fake fats, right? The margarines and and the shed spreads. You know, I actually grew up with shed spread and I (laughs) never really liked it. It looked kind of disgusting. It looked like it had food coloring in it. It was a weird consistency. And you put it on the counter and like two minutes, the whole thing would turn into mush. And it's like, Real butter doesn't do that. Like, what the heck? But, you know, it was cheaper. Everybody said real butter was bad for you in those days. And we were misguided, misdirected. You know, Ansel Keys is tip of the iceberg with respect to all that discussion, which probably don't have time to get into. But real fat that comes from real living things like butter, especially grass-fed. And and I'm so stoked that now you can get grass-fed butter more easily. Even at Mm -hmm. Costco, we have it in Hawaii. If we have it in Hawaii, it's probably everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
but I love, <laughs> I love real sources of any kind of food. And in this case, it's a real source of butter and fats. So here's the thing. I, I've actually come a little bit full circle on this because there was a time where I was like super into the, the super low carb movement. And, and I think low carb is great, especially for initial phases of weight loss. Yeah. But- desensitized to insulin for sure. Exactly. And once you kind of get what I, what, what you described as insulin sensitive or what I like to call metabolic, uh, metabolically flexible, mm-hmm. and you can tolerate any type of nutrient, whether it be carbs, fats, proteins. Um, I feel like you could add more in, but I think for a quick, you know, couple of months when you want to get your body sensitive to insulin, going real low carb is super important. I, I did it too long. I did it for a couple of years, a couple of years back because it was all the fad, right? Everybody's yeah. doing this intermittent fasting. It's like, you do 16, I'm going to do 18. No, I'm going to do 20. Shoot, I'm going to do the OMAD thing. I'm going <laughs> to do one meal a day. And what I found out is that as a dude, number one, I was starting to lose muscle mm-hmm. when I was eating one to two meals a day. I just couldn't get the protein in. It was yeah. just really, really hard. So I added back the third meal. I And I love breakfast anyway. It's one of my favorite meals because it's protein packed. And so I think all of these things are good in the right time and when they come from a real whole food source. But mm-hmm. but weight loss stuff is really, I think, critical to sensitize your body to insulin, which a low-carb diet is really critical for. I just don't think low-carb is the panacea for the rest of your life. I think yeah. low-ish carbs is fine, but then if you want to get carbs from fruit, a bunch of vegetables that have these phytonutrients, I'm all about that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm after it. I put all of these things on my plate. It looks like a rainbow of colors. I love colorful vegetables and fruit. You nailed it. I mean, at least that's where I've arrived as well. And we are going to circle back and talk more about intermittent fasting. I have some specific questions on that. But what are some of your family's go-to healthy carbs, proteins, and fats? And I'm asking you now, like dad to dad, you're feeding a number of kids in your household. (laughs) So like, what's the production look like for like dinner time, for example? What is often served at the family table and how do you prepare that? Yeah. And I would say, first of all, just give some hope to all of the folks out there. When you first make a dietary change as an individual, it's a little tough. And then you bring the whole family in, they, you know, you got young kids, they can be a little resistant that's Mm -hmm. normal. But guess what? If you stick to it and you, especially mom or dad, you take the lead and you're like, this is the way we're going to eat. And that's the way the kids see you eat. And that's the way you buy the food in the supermarket to begin with. They will follow. I'm promising you when I grew up, Sad to say it, like I was a Wheaties kid, Wheaties, cornflakes, checks, whatever. I always started my day with some kind of breakfast cereal. Like I don't even put that stuff in the house anymore yeah. because it's like probably the least nutritious of almost <laughs> anything you could eat in yeah. the morning. I mean, it, we might as well eat cardboard, for example, and cardboard wouldn't have all the sugar in it, but it's, it's not good for you. And I, that's the way I grew up. I mean, that's what we were told, you know, that yeah. all the Olympians were on the you know, Wheaties <laughs> box. Why wasn't I going to eat that stuff? I mean, it was marketing. Yeah. So at dinner, you mentioned, I always think of first, and, and this is cool because my kids follow now. I got a daughter, like I mentioned, who has type one diabetes. And her first question is what is going to be our protein tonight? Hmm. Like what's going to be the protein? Like she's thinking protein because she knows mm-hmm. how powerful protein is. So is it going to be chicken? Is it going to be steak? Uh, the other night we had ribeye and I was stoked because I had leftovers and I've been eating steak and egg two mornings <laughs> in a row now. Nice. So, <laughs> so I always start with what's the protein and here we're currently at home in Hawaii and we have lots of fresh fish available. So mm-hmm. we eat, um, ahi tuna, we eat mahi mahi, we eat all that kind of thing more readily when I'm 
spending time elsewhere. I don't eat a lot of fish because I'm kind of, I don't know, a little bit of a fish snob. I like mm-hmm. the fresh stuff that's caught in local waters. I know the fishermen. I know where it comes from. You know, I kind of like that. So it's either some sort of protein, usually a fish, a chicken, or a steak, or mm-hmm. I, I, I'll be honest, like we buy pounds and pounds of ground beef every mm-hmm. single week. Like we go to Costco and we'll like buy, you know, 10 of those packages and each one has, I think it's like four pounds of ground yeah. beef per package. You know, it's so like a pound and something each one. And there's three of them. Mm-hmm. We buy like 10 of those when we go to Costco and people look at us like, you guys are insane because it's like 20 bucks a pop, you know, right, yeah. right. There's $200 worth of just ground beef. I mean, it's, it's a little on the pricey side, but it's sort of my go-to protein. You can put it in anything, right? You can make tacos, you can make, yeah. throw it in it to a sauce for something. Um, so I always look at what's the protein first. And then mm-hmm. after that, we, we talk about what are going to be the vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, um, you know, my kids, thankfully, because my wife and I started it, like I eat lots of veggies, like they, they, they get tons of fiber. We, we love Brussels sprouts. That's one of our favorites. I mm-hmm. don't know why we just learned how to cook them. You roast we don't them? Boil oven them. Roast like them? as a, how do you do yeah, Always, always oven roast them. Like mm-hmm. as a kid, my parents boiled them and they taste like crap. They're bitter. Yeah. They have zero flavor. Like I hated Brussels sprouts and we've always buttered them up. We put some Parmesan cheese. We always roast them in the oven. So they're a little bit on the crispy side. Mm-hmm. You want something fanatically amazing, throw in a little bit of bacon in there. Like, mm-hmm. holy crap, you've never had such a great vegetable in your life. Like mm-hmm. Brussels sprouts can be amazing. Um, so that's the second thing I put on the plate is, is the healthy vegetable. And I, I do about half, like I do half protein, half veggies. And then at the end of the meal, we'll throw in some kind of a, a berry something. Usually we just love berries in our house. So blueberries, raspberries, Mm -hmm. strawberries, like any kind of berry that we can find at Costco that's organic. We'll throw that on at the end of the meal. Maybe we'll have it with a little bit of uh, Greek yogurt, for example, as our little Mm -hmm. treat, you know, instead of ice cream, which is what I used to think as a treat, but I hardly ever eat ice cream anymore. It's just such too sugary for me. And honestly, mostly low quality. Um, but that's kind of what a typical dinner looks like. Some kind of big uh, protein that takes up half the plate, bunch of veggies, and then sort of uh, the end of the the meal, we throw in some kind of a fruit. I love that. Seems really simple. You could do it in many simple. ways. And obviously yep. you do rely on like ground beef as a go-to, which I didn't overlook. That seems like a really big staple. And you also get the healthy fats in that too, which is great because yep. it'll keep you really full. All right. I want to talk about fasting. I know fasting is- uh, okay. You talk about, you know, basically fasting and circadian rhythm. It's something that you do. And when I was reading your book, something I found that was really cool is how you kind of discovered over time that you started to like breakfast. And in fact, you, it was better to have the breakfast and sometimes you actually skip dinner, um, which I think is cool because a lot of people do it the other way where they shift that yeah, first meal yeah. back a long time. And, and maybe they, you know, do a, we, we have a lot of people who listen to this, who do a 24 hour dinner to dinner fast once in a while, which is huge, mm-hmm. but talk to us yeah. about just like fasting, what you do, what you've kind of discovered going through this, the different levels of it and how you implement this. Yeah. So, and I, and I've tried all of the above, like we were kind of chit chatting about the OMAD thing that mm-hmm. even snuck into that, uh, into my lifestyle for a few months. And I, I've tried it all. And what I've found is that I do best personally when I'm eating three meals a day, partly because I like to get the protein in. I, I shoot for 150 grams every single day. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do if you're eating two meals and super hard to do if you're eating one, right, one meal. Sure. And I would say you'd probably have a hard time processing all that, assimilating yeah. that and whatnot. But um, I always do 
uh, mild overnight, what I call a circadian fast. So Mm -hmm. this is kind of like your natural body cycle is that during the day we should be doing all our stuff, including we should eat during the day. Once it's nighttime, we shouldn't really be eating anymore. I mean, just think of what we used to do a hundred years ago, 200, a thousand years ago. We never really ate at night. We didn't have refrigerators. We didn't have pantries, Mm. you know, heaven forbid we didn't have convenience stores and drive throughs So we never ate at night. So I always recommend at least an overnight 12-hour fast for anyone and everyone. Even my type 1 diabetic daughter does at least a 12-hour fast every single night. Like that's baseline. We can all do that. If you want to throw in a couple hours on the other end of that, whether before or after, I'm cool with that too. I personally like to try to fit in uh, three meals. So I'm trying to eat um, a breakfast, which is sometime usually around 10 a.m., mm-hmm. which still gives me about a 14-hour fast on most days because I'm yep. usually done eating by 6 p.m. And so um, you add a couple hours there by 8 or 9, you've already done your 14 hours. And usually I'm just not hungry when I first wake mm-hmm. up. And when I did these prolonged fasts, I never woke up hungry. And so I got used to not eating in the morning anyway. And I think that's a good approach for most people is just to don't eat at night. I would say the hardest thing to start is that couple of hours before you go to bed. Cause most yep. of us, you know, it's like, you're so busy. You push hard all day long. Sometimes you don't get dinner, you know, until like seven or eight o'clock at night. And then if you do what I recommend, wait three hours, that means you shouldn't lay down till at least 11 o'clock mm-hmm. to go to sleep. You should have about a three hour window before you lay down at night where you're not eating. I call it a food curfew. And that's mm-hmm. actually super helpful for your sleep, you'll sleep better. Yeah. You know, any any of us, like even me, when I go out on the weekends and maybe my wife and I might have a later meal, if I get to bed, you know, closely after eating a big meal, I'll be tired and I'll fall asleep. But like two hours later, I'm awake and I'm like tossing and turning. Sure. I'm having a crappy sleep. And it's because I ate late into the night where I should have done a little bit of a, a curfew, as I like to call it, a food curfew, mm-hmm. and don't eat those last three hours before bed. So I feel like fasting is still beneficial for everyone on a regular basis, like a 12 hour overnight fast. And you can extend that by a couple of hours. What I don't think is great is when we take it to the extremes, like we do an 18 or 20, 22 hour fast, like every single day. And we just eat like one meal a day. Yeah. That's not really great for the long term. I think it's okay for the short term. And you could even do that once a week. If you want to do a 24 hour yeah. fast, we once like a week. that I once personally a week, do it but every day would be yeah. too much for sure. Yeah. Every day is too much. And, and the other thing, and, and people don't realize this is that when you get into that like over fasted state, your body gets smart. It's like, Hey, these are kind of like famine conditions. Like I know what's going on here. I'm going to actually hold on to those calories even more strongly than ever before. And so at first you'll lose a bunch of weight and then your body gets used to it. It's like, screw that. I'm going to hold on to these calories. No way. You're not going to trick me. Like mm-hmm. I know what famine looks like. Like I've been through <laughs> thousands and thousands of years of existence as a human. I know what that looks like. And so that's why you got to mix it up. Whatever you're doing, you should mix it up. In fact, even for me, I don't do the exact same thing on every single day of the week. On the weekends, I'm usually pretty mellow about my fast. Like I'll just do my minimum 12 hours. Yep. Um, and then on the days of the week, I usually extend it to 14 or 15, but I'm still packing in three meals in a day. And what I found is really helpful for people too, is if they take a little bit of a break between meals and they just eliminate snacking. Snacking yep. is 
not great for our metabolism. Mm -hmm. Like what we were taught back in the day in school, like you got to eat every three hours. Like most of that is hogwash. It's based on zero science, but that, what that'll do is guarantee you insulin resistance. If you're always (laughs) spiking your glucose, guess what also spikes your insulin and guess what? Your body gets resistant to it. And so eliminating snacking, extending, you know, the evenings to 12 hours minimum to not eat overnight. That's the baseline. I think everybody can benefit from, like I said, even my daughter, who's a type one diabetic, even my wife, when she's pregnant, she usually goes 12 hours overnight. Um, and most of us can do that 12 hours overnight, but don't really be pushing it like on a daily basis. If you want to do a 24 hour fast once a week, or you want to do, uh, 48 or 72 hour fast once a month. Like I'm cool with that. Fasting is awesome. It's just not made for every single day. Yeah, I totally agree. And it wasn't missed on me, the subtle detail of your food curfew and then how you all have the berries or the sweet thing at the end. It's like a signal to, if you have it, it's like the last thing you covered all the taste range. You got the umami. Now you got a little sweet. And then mentally, I'm sure a switch flips in your, in your mind where you're like, okay, time for the food curfew. It's over. And now it's yeah. no longer an option. And then you begin the fast. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it works out. It's like, it's, it's, it's the proverbial cherry on top, but it's usually a couple of berries on top. Absolutely. I love it. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about hydration. Um, what do you counsel uh, your patients and your clients and, and people who come to you for health advice in, re- in relation to hydration? That might be type of water impurity, amount of water you drink, when you drink it, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I would say um, it's really, really important to at a baseline, get approximately, and these are approximate, everybody's a little bit different because if you're in a place where you're sweating a lot, like East coast in the summer or the Mm -hmm. South during the summer or Hawaii, like me, where you're, you know, the temperature is just up a few notches and the humidity, like you're going to have to add a little bit to this, but most people could benefit from a simple equation where you just take your body weight. Like for me, 150, 155 pounds, Mm -hmm take half of that in ounces and Mm -hmm. use that as your starting point. So for me, I always at a bare minimum, it's like 80 ounces of water, bare minimum. That's just where I start. And then if I'm exercising, if it's a hot day, like it is today, the sun finally came out after like three days of nonstop rain. It's so humid. You can tell I'm like having beads (laughs) of sweat on my forehead because we don't have AC in the house here in Hawaii. So I'm like, I'm drinking this stuff like it's going out of style on a day like today. But I would say a baseline is half of your body body weight, um, when you're speaking pounds to ounces every day as a minimum, Mm -hmm. and then add to that for your exercising, add to that for the time of year. And pretty much the only thing that counts for me is, is, is water. If you're going to throw in like a packet of electrolytes that counts obviously, Mm -hmm. but if you're going to be drinking like soda, which hopefully you're not drinking, but if you are, you know, uh, I don't really count that towards your water intake because Mm -hmm. a lot of times it has things in there will act like a diuretic, which makes Mm -hmm. you pee. So you may actually be less hydrated after you drink whatever that fluid is. So I'm pretty much just counting water for the most part. If you're eating a bunch of fruit, there's obviously significant water content, like in a watermelon or a melon cantaloupe, honeydew melon, those kinds of things too. And that kind of plays in, but I would start with the bare minimum of half of your body weight in ounces every day at a baseline. And I would say when you first wake up in the morning, probably the best thing to reach for, it's not the coffee, it's not you know, the, the croissant or the bagel or mm-hmm. whatever, or even a piece of fruit. The best thing to reach for initially is a big tall glass of water. I start sure. every day with at least 16 ounces of water. First thing when I wake up, because why? Because I'm 
as I mentioned, I'm in my 50th year. Like I, if I drink water before I go to bed at night, I'm getting up to pee. Like that sucks. I don't want to get up to pee. I want to sleep the whole night. And so you wake up naturally a little bit dehydrated Mm because hopefully you haven't had anything to drink in at least eight hours. And so you wake up and it's like, yeah, that big tall glass of water never tasted so good. I'm down in the whole thing. There's even an Ayurvedic principle that describes this practice of drinking a big tall glass of water. They usually say like 20 ounces. I I shoot for 16, 18, and mm-hmm. sometimes 20. But when I first wake up, boom, pound the water. And it kind of kind of gets me fired up, gets all my cylinders going, gets yeah. me ready for the day. So start every day with water, especially if you're looking for weight loss, one of the best things to do, start every meal with a full glass of water. Drink Mm. eight to 16 ounces right before every single meal. And it does two things. One, there's this thing metabolically called the thermogenic effect of water that Mm -hmm. actually boosts your metabolism a little bit, helps you burn calories better. But also guess what? Duh, it extends the stomach. It distends it a little bit. There's some sensory receptors in there that say, hey, Mm -hmm. My stomach's already got something in there starting to fill up. Maybe I won't want to eat as much food. Like it has that sort of physical effect as well. Um, And you just, it's so darn easy. And yes, if you can get the reverse osmosis, if you can add back in some minerals and electrolytes, great too. But I would just say to baseline, you know, make sure you're drinking at least your half of your body uh, in ounces um, every day and then start the day with about 16 to 20 ounces of water and try to do water before every meal as well. That'll help, especially with weight loss. Hey, it's Dr. Ray. I want to quickly pause this episode to thank you so much for listening to this Fit Mother Project podcast. I am just blown away at how amazing this podcast has become, all the powerful stories, all the great expert interviews, and I am so grateful for you for tuning in and being here with everything we're creating here at the Fit Mother Project. And I just wanted to pause to acknowledge you and thank you again for listening. Please keep listening and tuning in to all the great stuff we're doing here at the FMP. Let's get back to today's episode. All right. So this is probably something that wasn't discussed when you were in medical school, and that's the role of environmental toxins in preventable disease, particularly like stuff in our households, industrial stuff could be in food products, but also plastics. Like, what do you teach people about that? Like, what do people need to know about environmental toxins? Like, are they the real deal? And if so, which ones, what, what things are actual actionable in our households to look out for and what changes have you made for your family? Yeah. Yeah. So this is definitely not something we focused on in medical school. We talked about, you know, the toxidromes, if you will, when people would have accidental or purposeful overdoses on different things or, or whatnot, but we didn't talk a lot about environmental toxins that surround us each and every day. And there's sadly thousands and thousands, there's like 80,000 some odd approved, uh, toxic chemicals here in the US, right here at home that are approved for use that yeah. say that they're okay. It's like Roundup is one of them, glyphosate. Like that's okay? Heck no, that stuff is not okay. Yeah. But here's the thing. So what I do at home, a couple of just super, super simple things. Number one, first thing, and this started, I'll just be honest, in Hawaii, we have a tradition and most people do here, we take our shoes off at the door. So don't go trudging into your house with your shoes on. Like who knows, especially me as a physician, if I'm working in the hospital, ER clinic, like who knows what kind of bacteria I got on my shoes. In fact, I even went to the point where I have a pair of shoes that I leave at work. I don't even leave, they don't leave the building. They stay at work. I don't ever take those things out. I don't bring them home. Like I always have myself, my kids and anybody who visits, like you got to take your shoes off first thing. So don't wear shoes in the house. And especially if you have carpet, like yeah. Please don't wear shoes in the house. Like double whammy, you can never really clean carpet. Like for us in Hawaii, 
one of the first things we ever did, first home we had here, we ripped out all of the carpet. Talk about huge allergen, flame retardant, just toxic dump of chemicals in carpet. And, and, and it's just, it's tough. Like if you're going to get, you know, a organic, you know, hemp or bamboo or whatever, like it's better, but I don't, I'm not a fan of carpet. Um, so take your shoes off at the door for the most part, try to avoid carpet. Um, if you can, here's another big thing also free, open your windows, let the air flow through. And I know we're coming up on winter, so it's probably starting to get cold. But even if you have a window cracked and you let some natural airflow come in, that's almost always a good thing. Unless you live exactly next door to an airport and you're getting kerosene and other burning fumes coming straight into your house. I mean, outside of that, for most of us, having a little bit of some air circulation through our homes is actually a really good thing. So open the windows, Um, take your shoes off when you first hit the door. And then I would say the biggest, um, secondary thing that, that does tend to cost a little bit of money is make sure you're drinking clean water. And what this usually means is you can get, I I always recommend a reverse osmosis uh, filtration system to start. And these aren't super expensive. You can get one on Amazon for maybe two to $300. So it's not like crazy ridiculous, but it's a really good investment because there's nothing worse than having bad quality water. I mean, we've all heard of the crazy stories that have been perpetuated with the media, like the Aaron Brockovich stories and the others that have happened when people live close to industrialized places that dump their effluent right into the rivers and then we get to drink it and nobody seems to care. They say it's safe, but it's not. Like, like there's actually a really cool website. If you just go to ewg.org, there's links to how you can get your local water um, information. Yeah. You can, you know, it's really helpful. So, so a reverse osmosis filter is kind of the baseline. I add to that. Um, I also have a carbon filtration that goes after that. So I do, or charcoal, I should say. So reverse osmosis, and then I have a charcoal filter that it goes through after that. And then, you know, about half of the water I drink in a day, I throw in some electrolytes just to add back. Cause one of the downsides of like ultra filtering your water is sometimes you'll miss out on some of the important minerals that you might otherwise get. Yeah. And I'm not talking about fluoride, like get the fluoride out of the water. We don't need that. It's never been shown to really be helpful. Um, but I'm talking about, you know, you can get, uh, helpful things like calcium, magnesium, potassium. You can potentially get that from good quality water. And when you ultra filter it, sometimes that gets filtered out. So adding that back in is not a bad idea, but water is really important. And then you've mentioned it already, like get rid of the plastics. I mean, even simple things like this is a glass cup. Yeah. My, my, um, bottles, I also either use, um, I either use glass, which, you know, I have young kids. So with them, they have the stainless steel ones. Mm -hmm. Um, but we try to get rid of all the plastics in the house. Like heaven forbid, like don't put plastic in the microwave. Don't, you know, eat out of plastic. I mean, try not to drink out of plastic bottles. When I travel, sometimes I have to, because that's the only thing that's available. And like this last trip, I spaced it and my water bottle had a little bit of water in it through security. So I I didn't have time to go back through and save it. So I had to dump my, my water bottle that I really liked. And, and so sometimes I do drink out of plastic. I just don't try to, (laughs) I try to avoid it, you know, because plastics are like the new, I I don't know how you speak of these things, but they are, (laughs) disastrous to our hormonal system. And they're so prevalent, whether it be from the water bottles, from the 
cookware, from just the packaging of standard foods that we buy at the grocery store. I mean, almost everything is in plastic. Like, get yeah. out of the plastic. Like, my wife got upset with me because I started dumping all of our Tupperware and replacing it with glass. Yeah. And it's great because I feel better about it. But if the kid drops it on the tile floor because we don't have carpet or anything, it breaks and it's a mess to clean up. So it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a trade-off with young kids that sometimes the glass gets broken and things like that. But I just feel so much better about keeping my food out of plastic as much as I can. So those are kind of the lowest yeah. hanging fruit that I think most of us can benefit from immediately. And basically, they're all free other than the water filtration. Very and good. air too. The air part is 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 not necessarily free. But if you open the window, that's free. Just open the window and circulate a little bit. Or yes, if you have some kind of a heating or or HVAC, you know, AC type unit, make sure you clean those filters at least once a month. Like you'd be surprised at what's living in there. I just did a test on mine and I was like, whoa, like I thought I was pretty anal about cleaning this stuff. And now I'm like, I'm cleaning it, you know, twice as often. <laughs> nice. Good rundown. Um, now I want to ask you about supplements as we've kind of discussed yeah. that nutrition, whole food based nutrition is, is the foundation that said, there are probably some supplements that people can take. Are there any supplements that you would recommend generally for most people over 40? Yeah, absolutely. And here's here's why they're important. So even if you do a food first mantra, which is always what I profess to do and I do my best to do, you're going to have some gaps. And supplements, as long as we use them as supplemental and we don't use them as, hey, I'm going to take this so I can eat that checks in the morning or Wheaties or Doritos in the afternoon. Like it doesn't replace a crappy diet. Like this is just adding to the holes that we will have even with a whole foods diet. Because right now, present day, our soils are deplete. Like there was a study that came out, it was like 1938 that was showing that the soils were significantly depleted of nutrients back nearly a hundred years ago. And guess what? Nothing's been done about it. Yeah. And it's even worse. It's even worse now. So the things that we buy, even though there are you know, hopefully organic and they're well-raised and all of that, they still are less full of nutrients than they used to be. So there are a few things that we need to supplement with, even with the whole foods, real foods diet. And one that almost all of us can benefit from is the omega-3 fatty acids. Most of us don't get two to three servings of fish every week. Even I don't when I'm not in Hawaii. I just don't. I probably have fish once every two weeks when I'm not in Hawaii. When I'm here, I have it maybe three times a week, maybe four times a week because it's just so readily available. So the omega-3s are game-changing. I mean, yep. for brain health, they're also very much anti-inflammatory and like talk about a good fat to have, the omega-3s. Um, I actually did a recent podcast on that. If people want a really interesting backstory, you know, many of us are familiar with the omega-3 that became pharmaceuticalized, that was sold as, and still is, sold as a prescription, which is actually not even as good as the ones <laughs> you can get in supplement form, which yeah. is kind of crazy. But anyway, there's an interesting story about that that I share there. But omega-3s, we could pretty much all around the you know, whole world benefit from. Uh, magnesium yep. is one of my favorite minerals, and most of us are deficient, at yep. least functionally in magnesium. And so I feel like we could almost all benefit from additional magnesium in our diet because it is literally involved in 600 plus reactions, including the most important one that keeps us alive every single day, every breath, making the ATP. You can't even do that without magnesium. Magnesium is super important. Vitamin mm -hmm. D, which yep. is also one of those super important low-hanging fruits that unless we're barebacked in the sun every single day of our lives, like we're probably not 
going to get enough. Even I, when I'm in Hawaii and I literally, I, I walk around with my shirt off and bare feet and like, I'm getting as much vitamin D as I can. What I've noticed is with age, you actually don't produce it as efficiently as you did when you were a kid. So even I, when I'm in the sun, I'm still taking vitamin D supplements. Yes, I'm trying to get it from our, our food. Like fish has vitamin D, any kind of liver. Um, if you're eating the whole organ, that nose to tail approach, which I know most of us don't, but if I can get some chicken liver, beef liver from time to time, I try to add that to my diet. Or if you can't stomach the thought of that, there's, there's some supplements, some organ supplements, but vitamin D is really important and it's actually really inexpensive. So that's D3. I usually throw in a D3 K2 together yeah. with that. And, um, game changing. So, so those three are sort of top, I would yeah. say lowest hanging fruit that almost anybody can benefit from. But I do have an entire chapter in my book preventable that speaks exactly to the supplement, um, topic because it's confusing. <laughs> and so many people out there are like, well, take this one. No, take that one. Oh, so I'll go through in the book, like how to, you know, come up with a good game plan of how to approach all supplements, because I buy like 20 different brands. I don't just buy one type. Like if it's good and it, it uses good manufacturing practices, it comes from a good source, hopefully not China, you know, and all these things. And, it, and it's, you know, uh, been looked at for other fillers, additives, toxins, and, and things like that. And you, and you trust the label and you know they use the good manu manufacturing processes and it's third-party validated, things like that. Like there's so many different brands out there that are good. So it's not just one brand, but it's a little bit nuanced. And I would just, for better, you know, complete list, you know, check out the book. I got a whole chapter there, but those are sort of my three favorites that I just mentioned. Love it. Love it. Okay. So as we get into the tail of this, I want to ask you about how the rubber meets the road here in terms of people doing this, you know, what's the order of lifestyle change of things people could do is something more important than others. We talked about food. We haven't mentioned specifically exercise, but obviously it's very important. And then there's sleep and then there might be supplementation. Like, how do you counsel someone through the thinking through the hierarchy and, and where to actually start when implementing a lifestyle change like this? Yeah, so you're exactly right. All of those factors, and you left out one really important one, uh, stress and how the stress influences all of us. And I think the last, you know, several years with the pandemic has been super stressful for most of us, how we optimize that and deal with stress in our life, super important. But I would say the starting point is gotta be what we put in our mouth. So what lands at the tip of our fork, our food is, is I think the biggest initial first lever. And if you focus on the real foods, like we talked about and avoid the big three that we talked about ad nauseum, super great place to start. The second is and equally important. It's gotta be the movement piece. And what's cool about the movement piece is that I don't think it needs to be that complicated. I think we've made it way too complicated and even our influencer friends make it too complicated. You're looking at a guy who's really active and can do a lot of crazy things with his body and yet I don't have a gym membership. So it can be done simply. You don't need a gym membership. I think having some kind of weight, you know, training portion, what we now call resistance training and doing that at least three days a week is really, really important. I think that's one of the biggest misses in traditional fitness, traditional medicine, health and wellness is that we over-focus, over-emphasize cardio. Cardio is great, but like if you do cardio all day, every day, and you never do anything with weights, like you will actually lose muscle mass. And yeah. I'm telling you from a guy who lost a little bit when he was doing too much fasting, it's not what you want. Like if there's one thing that'll help your metabolism more than anything, it's putting on more muscle. 
Muscle is the metabolic magic for the ladies. It's the metabolic spanks that hold you all tight and together. The way that you want to look, that's muscle. Like you want to have more muscle. So if you're not incorporating at least three days a week, some kind of weight training, resistance training activity, and it can be at a gym or it can just be doing air squats like I'm doing yeah. right now. It can be doing pull-ups. It can be doing push-ups. It can be doing bodyweight stuff. Do, do planks, do lunges. Like all this stuff can easily be done with body weight. And if you have a couple of, you know, dumbbells that you can add to it at home, like we have a super small skimpy home gym for, for my wife and I, who are fitness fanatics. Like I wish I had all those, uh, fancy, you know, different machinery and equipment that they have at a gym. We just had this weird, uh, first time in our life opportunity to go on a cruise a few months ago. And what I loved, it sounds crazy. The two things I loved the most was they had an amazing gym. And most people, when they're on a cruise, they're not thinking go to the gym. Dude, I was at the gym like all day. Like I loved that place. There yeah. were so many exercises to do, so much equipment. Like I was eating amazing food, but I was working out like crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. It was awesome. I love the gym, but I don't personally have a membership to one and you don't need one, but do body weight stuff. Make sure you incorporate at least three days of resistance training. Don't overdo the cardio and just do the simple things. Like I'm going to share with you two things that we can all do that most of us don't think about. One is just do more every day standing than you thought possible. So nowadays, you know, the standing desk is kind of a cool thing. I'm standing talking to you right now, Dr. Anthony. Like I don't have a standing desk most places that I work. I get a cardboard box, I throw it on top of the regular desk and my laptop is right on top of that cardboard box. Like yeah. that's my standing desk. Like it's easy. Do as much as you can throughout the day with movement. If you got to take a call and you can do it on a walk, like just go for a walk and take yeah. the call on the walk. Like it's, it's amazing. If you just think about how you can incorporate more movement into your day, a lot of the things that we do, we could do on a walk or we could do standing. Or what I recommend people do is after every meal, do five to 10 minutes, 10 would be perfect. Mm -hmm. 10 minutes of movement of any kind. If you're in yeah. a super cold place and you got young kids, one of the funnest things ever, you put on some music and you do a 10 minute dance party. You pick three songs, you're done. And it's a lot of fun. You get a lot of giggles, especially if you got little girls like I do, yeah. even the boys, they, they giggle and they think it's kind of cheesy and lame, but they'll do it too. Like we just do 10 minutes of movement after every meal, no matter what. So if That's you're awesome. a workplace, Eat your lunch, but then go up and down the stairs for 10 minutes. Yeah. If you're at home, do whatever you want to do. Go for a quick walk around the block. You know, whatever. Just do 10 minutes of movement after every meal, and it'll be a game changer, not just for your insulin sensitivity, but for your waistline and just for this, this yeah. that lies between the ears. Like, you'll be so much happier. You get so much more energy. You digest your food better. It's like the simplest thing ever. And yes, there's data now that says it's better for insulin resistance and all that cool stuff. Lots of data. But it works and it's fun. Just move a little bit more. So those are the two biggest game changers. I think sleep is under utilized as well. I think it's one of the most powerful tools. I got a whole chapter on the book on that. And mm -hmm. I would just say, prioritize it, mm -hmm. schedule it, put it in the dang calendar. And if you have little kids like I do still like try to get them to bed a little bit earlier so you mm -hmm. can make sure you get your seven or eight hours of sleep. Like for me, once I started valuing that, my wife will tell you, I'm just a better human. I'm just nicer. Yeah. I'm kinder. I just a better dude when I have a full night's sleep. So don't underestimate the value of sleep. I love it. I mean, I'm just reflecting on 
this conversation and what we've covered so far, this was like a wide range from the beginning when we talked about the big picture of what's going on and like a population level all the way through the deep nutrition stuff. And now into the, the simple habits like dance party. I'm going to start with that with my daughter. I think that's a brilliant way because I can't always get that walk. So I'm taking a lot out of this and I'm sure everyone listening is. And also what I really love is that you've definitely affirmed a lot of the principles behind our programming and stuff that people have gone through. And I think that's going to help so many people realize that coming from you, especially in the weight that these things have, is going to help really just drive these principles home and something someone's really going to value. So on that note, I know you do a ton of health education in many places, your book, your podcast, please tell us where more people can connect with you far past this combo. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Anthony, for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And I would just like to leave everybody with, you can start today with any of these things. Pick a couple that you've heard that you're like, I'm going to do like Dr. Anthony says, I'm going to do that dance party now. Like I'm excited about that. Like whatever it is, just pick a couple of things to start with today. And you would be surprised when done consistently, how big the effect, the magnitude of these small, simple things that we can just do on the daily, they will have huge, hugely positive effects in our future, whether it be weight loss, more energy. We just like the way we look better. We just feel better. We just, you know, we're excited about life. We wake up alive instead of like I was for many years, just kind of on autopilot. Like I was surviving life for way too many years and I'm thriving now and I want thriving to be a part of each and every one of your lives. And so easiest place to reach out um, is just my website, which is my name, thomashemingway.com or Instagram, Dr. Thomas Hemingway, that's just D-R and then Thomas Hemingway. I spell my name just like Ernest did with one M. Got the same name as cool grandfather Ernest <laughs> there, though nothing closely related, sadly. Um, but I do have a book now, which, you know, you type in Hemingway and his books will come up and maybe mine will too. Hopefully my book is over there on Amazon, uh, preventable. You can just put my name in Thomas Hemingway. It'll come up there for you. But uh, yeah, any place on the interwebs, Thomas Hemingway, you can find me. And I would love it if you grab the book because it just, it, there was a whole topic here, Dr. Anthony, we didn't even touch at all, which I think is one of the biggest needle movers, which maybe we can talk about on a future episode or something, mm. is gut health. Gut health yeah. is so critical. And I devote a couple of chapters in the book to that as well. And so, um, yeah, just uh, follow me over there on Insta, grab my book, and let me know what you're liking and loving and learning. And actually, I do respond to all my messages personally, both on Insta and emails and stuff like that. So reach out to me. I'd be happy to chat and keep keep uh, keep doing what Dr. Anthony is recommending. He's a cool dude and, and really has got um, just a plethora of helpful courses and, and uh, programs. Like I just think what he's doing is amazing. So thanks for having me on, Dr. Anthony. Keep crushing it, man. Thank you. You too, brother. This was great. I learned a ton. I appreciate you. Hey there, my friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Fit Mother Project podcast. If you love what you heard, I have a favor to ask you. Please consider taking 60 seconds right now to leave us a rating and review on our podcast. Leaving us a review is super quick. It only takes a minute and it's so, so helpful to us as it really boosts this podcast to reach more people who need this information and this message. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, you can leave us a star rating and review. If you're watching on YouTube, you can hit the like button and leave us a comment. Overall, I truly appreciate you being with us here on the podcast. On behalf of me and my entire Fit Mother Project team, we truly feel honored and grateful to support you and your family on your journey to fantastic health. I thank you for your support of this podcast and of this mission. 
Also, if you're interested in joining our Complete Fit Mother program and becoming an official member of our community, you can visit our website, fitmotherproject.com. And on the Fit Mother site, you'll be able to see our Complete Fit Mother program along with our online store with the best supplements designed for busy moms. And you'll also find a ton of free resources like recipes, workouts, meal plans, and more. God bless you and your family. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi signing off. I'll catch you on the next episodes of the Fit Mother Project podcast.